you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. This is just going to be a kind of a standalone message this morning on Romans chapter 8. So you can turn to Romans chapter 8, and we're just going to look at verses 1 to 4. But I am going to read through verse 8, but we're just going to focus on verses 1 to 4. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Where he says, Paul does. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's where the period goes. If you have a translation, or after that it says, uh, for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. uh, That phrase isn't supposed to be there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Many Christians struggle to find the awe in the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that God did not send his son to impress us. Uh, just this morning, I was in the, in the, in the nursery, and um, I was, there's, a little, there's a little kid's basketball thing in there and a ball, and I was, I was shooting them from pretty far away, and, and I was making them, trying to impress the kids. And I said, Amber, and my wife was in there, I said, Amber, I'm, I'm like five in a row on this. She goes, good job, babe, you're really rocking nursery basketball right now. And so... <laughs> Right? Like, I want to be impressed. Like, somebody pat me on the back. Somebody tell me, you know, how good I've done. That's not why God sent his son to die on the cross. He wasn't trying to impress us with his grace or his love. He wasn't looking for any cheers or a pat on the back. God sent his son to the cross not to impress us, but to impress upon us our need for a savior. He sent his son to impress upon us the need to give him glory. To impress upon us his worth, his supremacy, his love, his kindness, his holiness, his mercy, his grace. Now there's, I'm sure maybe there is one out there, but hardly not a commentary that I found on Romans chapter 8 that doesn't refer to this whole chapter as kind of the Mount Everest of biblical theology and richness. As a matter of fact, if... I were to choose if I could only have one chapter of scripture and I was going to be deserted on an island. It'd be Romans chapter 8. Why is this? Well, Alva J. McLean, commentator, says that the whole question of Romans chapter 8 is, will salvation last? And he answers the question, and he says, if you are in Christ, you are safe, end quote. So that's the theme. The whole theme of Romans chapter 8 is the absolute security of God's children. And this is why it's one of the the richest, most monumental chapters in all of the Bible. Because reading and understanding Romans chapter 8 
will remove any hesitancy for any Christian to say, in Christ, I am safe forever. In Christ, God will always love me. In Christ, I am destined for freedom from creation's corruption. In Christ, everything that happens to me on this planet in my life will turn out for good. In Christ, I am an heir of God's inheritance. So why preach a sermon on Romans 8, 1-4? And it's mainly because I do the very thing that Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4 to asks me not to do. And you might be looking at Romans 8, 1 to 4 and says, where's, where's there a command or where's there's a question in there? What's, I, don't see, I don't see anything in here where it says don't do something. But here's what Romans chapter 8 should do. Romans chapter 8 in verses 1 to 4 should get my eyes off of myself and get them to Christ. As a matter of fact, that's, that's my very tendency. I do the very thing. I look at myself. I look inward. I focus on myself. I focus on my problems, my struggles, my sins. Which is what Paul's problem was in Romans chapter 7, the previous chapter. Paul, he's relaying the misery he felt of looking inward. Because there's a lot of frustration that comes with remaining sin and it can be overwhelming. And so Paul wrote Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 4 should cause us to get our eyes off ourselves and off our problems. Or the problem of our own sin and lift them up onto Christ. Because when I look inward and I begin to focus on myself, one of two things will happen. And this is for anybody. One of two things will happen if you start looking inward and you start focusing on yourself. One is that I will either get arrogant and I'll pat myself on the back and congratulate myself because I'll look in and I'll say, hey, I'm actually not too bad. I'm doing pretty good. The other thing that happens is I get discouraged and I begin to condemn myself. Because I look in and, I, and there's those days, those weeks, those periods, those seasons of time where it's just, I'm not looking too good right now. And so when we focus on ourselves, when we look inward, and I think we'll talk about this, but it's good to look inward and do introspection, but we can't just keep our eyes there. But whether I'm congratulating myself or condemning myself, both of them stray from what God wants us to be doing. Congratulating myself exalts my prestige above Christ when, in fact, I contributed nothing to my salvation other than the ample reasons of why I should be in hell. And when I condemn myself, I'm I'm exalting my sin over Christ as if to say, Jesus, your death on the cross wasn't enough to pay for these sins, so I've got I've to beat myself up or I've got to shame myself or I've got to condemn myself. So when I congratulate myself, I lift myself up above Christ. When I condemn myself, I lift my sins above Christ and his death. And Paul looked inward in chapter 7, but he immediately looked back to Christ, and that's where his focus was. It's okay to look inward, but we can't focus inward. We have to look inward, see ourselves, and then focus on Christ. And that's what we should all do. And so uh, Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, four wonderful blessings for those in Christ. Number one, there's no condemnation for sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, if I were only limited to one verse, it'd probably be that one. 
Because you could live an entire life, you could live your entire Christian life off Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Now, don't do that. Read other parts of the Bible, of course. But he says, there is therefore. This therefore is not just calling us back to chapter 7, where Paul's struggling with self-condemnation. But it's really calling us back to all that Paul has unpacked so far. And I realize we haven't unpacked all that Paul has said so far. But on the screen for you will be a, a, just a, a little snippet of an outline. So Paul starts the first part of the book talking about condemnation. That is righteous, righteousness needed. And that's chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of cha- uh, middle of chapter 3. And so Paul says in chapter 1 that the rebellious are condemned. He says in chapter 2, the righteous are condemned. And then he says in chapter 3, oh, by the way, if you don't consider yourself rebellious or righteous, you're just kind of neutral, the rest of you are condemned. That's Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And then in the second part of the book, Paul goes into justification. This is how righteousness is needed. And he talks about, he explains it in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. He illustrates it with Abraham in chapter 4. And then he talks about this great enjoyment. Therefore, since we have peace with God, there's, there's no condemnation. We have, we have peace with God. There's, there's no dying. There's no, there's, no, there's no going to hell. We get to enjoy the benefits of this justification. And then the third section, which is where Romans chapter 8 is at, Paul talks about sanctification, that is righteousness demonstrated. In Romans chapter 6, he talks about the holy life. And he says, hey, if you're in Christ, your sins and your life, they've been crucified with Christ, and you no longer have to let sin have dominion over you. And then in chapter 7 is the victorious life, where Paul says, listen, the law is not my master anymore. And then he gets into chapter 8, and he talks about the confident life, which is where we are now. So he goes from, hey, everybody's condemned, yet... Everybody who is condemned makes them a perfect candidate for justification, for righteousness, for God's salvation. And that's what he gets to in chapters 3 through 5. And then he comes to and says, hey, if you've been condemned and then you've been saved, here's how your life should look. And that's what brings us to Romans chapter 8. It's as if, like, the only logical conclusion Paul could come to after talking about all this gospel stuff Like, the only logical conclusion I can come to after figuring all this out, Paul says, is Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And anyone in Christ can safely and boldly make this same conclusion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which I want you to notice another word in in uh, in this verse. The word now. It says there is therefore now. It's not, as Ray Ortland once said, it's not no condemnation in five years from now once you finally get your life together. It's not no condemnation while you sit in, until you sit in purgatory for a while. There is therefore now no condemnation. Which means this. The Christian life is not a journey to no condemnation. It's not a journey of trying to get to a place where you are no longer condemned by God. If that's the Christian life, we of all people should be so miserable. If we have nothing to do other than try to get ourselves to a place where we are no longer condemned by God. I mean, just think about the thief on the cross. 
heard a couple of pastors, just in little sermon snippets, uh, Alistair Begg and John Piper, just randomly kind of came across two of them at two different times, and they were both talking about the thief on the cross. Now think about if, 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 if the Christian life for the thief on the cross was a journey in trying to get to a place where he was no longer condemned by God. What did he ha- like, did he have a half hour? Did he have more than that? Maybe less than that? Like, Jesus, I trust you. You are the Messiah. I know five minutes ago I was just cussing you out, but I believe. And what did Jesus say? Jesus says, you have 30 minutes to try to get to the place of no condemnation. Otherwise, you are condemned. No, that's not what he said at all. He said, you believe in me, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that's, that is, that's what it is for every Christian. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Christian life is a present and eternal standing in a place of no condemnation. I am a no longer condemned man. And if you are in Christ, you are a no longer condemned man or a no longer condemned woman. So whatever else is going on in your life, whatever else is going on in in the now of your life, this is the most real and sure and steady thing if you're in Christ. This is the most real, sure, and steady right now you could ever experience is living in a place of no condemnation for all eternity. And whatever else in your right now is changing, a death in the family, finances going down, relationships crumbling, whatever else is changing in your life, this won't, ever. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. So it doesn't say less condemnation. He says no condemnation. He says there's absolutely no condemnation. And it's as if he's being emphatic about it. Condemnation is, is, isn't, it isn't the verdict of you're guilty. That's not condemnation. Condemnation is the sentence that comes after the guilty verdict. Okay, so this word condemnation is not saying, is not saying you're guilty. This word condemnation is saying because you're guilty, you're going to face the death penalty. That's condemnation. We could use the word damnation. This is where you say you are damned to hell because of your sins. And is it, isn't it interesting, one of the most severe, one of the most powerful, weighty words that God could ever use to talk about the punishment our sins deserve in the word damnation is probably the word most flippantly used in our society. But this is it. There is therefore now no damnation, no condemnation, no wrath, no punishment, no, no, no guilty verdict on you. And this is actually the same word uh, used in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. There it is. So your trespasses, your sins, they lead to condemnation. And Jesus is saying... If you're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So in Christ Jesus, those are the final words of verse 1. 
So we don't enter into the place of no condemnation on our own. It's only through Christ we enter into a place of no condemnation. In Jesus Christ means to be united with him. He's our new identity. Like there's no possibility of anyone in Christ Jesus receiving the death penalty because Jesus died on behalf of sinners. So this is the this is the this is the first wonderful blessing. The second one is not only do we have no condemnation, but we have no subjection to the law of sin. Notice what verse 2 says. Where he says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, free, so we're not subjected to it anymore, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is he talking about here? What is this word law? Because when we, when we read the word law in the Bible, what do we normally think about? We think about God's moral law from the Old Testament. We think of the Ten Commandments. That's not what's being talked about here. The word law does not refer to a commandment. The word law here refers to one's operating principle by which they live their lives. So think law of gravity more so than a law that is given to a society and has judicial consequences and stuff like that. This is a law. This is, this is, how you, this is the principles under which you live your life. That's what the word law means in this, in this verse. And so apart from Christ, he says it's the law of sin and death. We all operate according to sin and death. We operate our lives, we live our lives according to the principles of sin and death, ultimately sin leading to death. And that's the natural position of every human being. And he says it's the law of the spirit of life. So the only way we change from going to operating, living our lives under the principles of sin and death is for, their, uh, for a change to take place. And that change comes from the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit gives life to those who are in Christ. So that the operating principle under which we live is life in the Holy Spirit. That is true for every single Christian. You might be in here this morning and say, I don't feel like it. With how I lived my life this past week, I'm not feeling like I've been set free. We'll talk more on that. But this is truth. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus, the law of the Holy Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Like you no longer, you no longer operate in the realm of, of sin and death. You don't operate under those principles. The Holy Spirit has set free every follower of Jesus. This is spiritual freedom. And he's going to talk more on this in verse 4. So we're going to move on to the next one and circle back around. I don't like that phrase, circle back. We're going to come back to it. Uh, some, of you, some of you caught that. Uh, but uh, number three, no, the, the, here's the third wonderful blessing. No stipulation to be saved from sin. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, for God has done. Those are the first words. For God has done. There's no condemnation because you're in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free for God has done it. Okay, so now we see what God is doing here. Paul keeps pulling back the screen on the picture so we can get a, a full view of what is going on. And he pulls it back a little bit more. Now we get to see what's, what's going on at, at the foundational level here. God has done. It's not something we do in and of ourselves, but something that God has done. Without God stepping in and being the sole doer of salvation, then all of us would forever be enslaved to sin and destined for eternal death. 
Now, why, so why, why is point three no stipulation to be saved from sin? Is, is Paul like speaking to unbelievers now? No, he's still talking to those in Christ. But he's establishing that no condemnation, freedom, salvation, they come from God. So he says, for God has done what the law. Okay, so now we're going to, the term law, stay with me. It's switching back to actually kind of the Ten Commandments that you think of. Okay, so God has done what the law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, the moral law. He, God has done what the law could not do. Okay, it was weakened by the flesh. The phrase here, could not do, it's one word in the Greek language. Uh, it means powerless. It actually comes from a word where we get our word dynamite. Dunamis is where we get our word dynamite, and the Greek word is adunamis, and you don't have to remember that Greek word, uh, but the idea there being ah kind of negates it. It's powerless. It's not a dynamite. It's not going to, no explosion, no bang. It's actually the same word Jesus used in Matthew 19, 26. Remember when, when Jesus, he walks away from the rich guy, and he's like, man, it's easier for a rich guy to go through the, the eye of a, uh, a camel for, to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. And the disciples are like, man, who could be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. Exact same word. And so that's what he's saying here. There is, there is something in the law, God's moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, there is something that law could not do. There was an impossibility, a powerlessness of the law. And that it could not lift us up to a place of no condemnation. And whatever law you live by, whether you try to live by the Ten Commandments or you make up your own law or your own standards, maybe even it's even according to the Bible and what you know about God. Whatever law you're trying to get you to lift you up to a place of no condemnation, it's never, ever, ever, ever going to work because God has to do it. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That was the weakness of the law. The law can only tell you what to do. It can't give you the power to do it. The law can condemn you. It can't free you. It can't save you. That was Paul's argument if you look back at chapter 7, verse 9 and 13. That's where Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, okay, so somebody told me don't covet, sin came alive and I died. Did that which is good, okay, so the law is good. Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It was my sin producing death in me through what is good in order that it might be shown to be sin. So the law can tell me, Zach Fisher, don't do that. But it can give me no power at all to actually obey. As a matter of fact, what do we all want to do when we... If, I were to, if this morning I put a sign out there and it said wet paint on one of the walls, what's the first thing you want to do? It looks kind of dry. It looks dry. You do, the little, you do the little quick thing. But immediately when, you, when it says wet paint, do not touch, what, what's, the, what's the first thing we want to do? I want to touch it. I want to touch that, that painted wall to see if it's really, really, really wet. Actually, all my kids, when they got to be around two years old, and I have a two-year-old right now, Every single one of them, their, you know what their favorite words were? No, no, don't do that. It's, it's like, out of all things that would make a two-year-old come alive, it's the word no, no. It's like, it's just like fuel for the soul. His soul is, my two-year-old's soul, he's, it's stirred by the words no, no. 
and he looks and he squints a little bit. And I can even kind of go like this. If you touch that, you know, get a little flick on the hand. And he can kind of start scrounging up like he, he, doesn't, want, he, doesn't, want the, he doesn't want the penalty, but he wants to do whatever the no-no was. That's us. That's us. Don't commit adultery. Jesus says if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What, what do we love to do? We love to lust. Don't steal. Don't take what isn't yours. What do we love to do? We love to look at something and, and we covet it. And we say, that should be mine. I should have that. Why do my neighbors have that? I should be the one with the nicer car. I should be the one who gets. I should be the one with more money. Or it's only, it's only something small. It's not going to matter if I'm at work and they'll never notice it's missing. There's nothing wrong with the law. The point at which the law is powerless is our own flesh. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Our own sinful flesh uses the law to sin more. And so since the law can't empower us to no longer sin and it can't save us from the penalty of our sin, God has to do something. Right? You, can't, you can't carve a mountain with a firecracker. So we need, we need that dunamis. We need that dynamite. We need something that's going to blow it all up. And what did God do in verse 3? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in his flesh, in the flesh. He sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. That means he looked like us. He was a human being. He was a man. He looked like us. He had the, the, he had the human flesh, even though he, he never sinned. He was without a shred of sin. And he came in the likeness of sinful people to go to the cross and to condemn sin by dying as a man. Jesus was clothed in humanity. He was without a shred of sin and God sent him as the sin offering. Our sin is not dealt with by some abstract law or some lousy human effort. God nailed our sin to the cross. That's how sin is dealt with. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By telling us to get our acts together? No, by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. The hell, the curse, the condemnation our sins deserved were poured out completely on Jesus Christ. And we offer nothing to it. We offer nothing to it. God is done. Our law-breaking, our rebellion deserves condemnation. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ secures freedom for anyone who calls on Jesus to be saved. And this situation with Jesus is, is different because we're united with Jesus. We get to say, we contributed nothing here, and we get to say, I'm with Jesus. I'm in Jesus Christ. You can call me unrighteous, but when God looks at me, I'm, it's, God is looking at me right now as if I live the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And nothing I ever do will ever change that. This is, this is something completely different than how I was talking yesterday. 
When I was talking, when I was, yesterday, I was at home, sitting on the couch, watching the Nebraska Cornhuskers play Oklahoma Sooners. And you know what I kept saying? Stuff like, we. Like, man, we are playing really good today. Or, man, if, if our kicker, our kicker, right, if our kicker would only play a little better, we would have, we'd be up by now. And here I am talking, like, I'm sitting on the couch eating chips and salsa. They're out there working on the field, and I'm, I'm talking as if I'm one of them. And they're doing all the work. They're doing all the running, all the hitting. They've put in all the preparation. And here I am sitting on the couch saying, man, we've, we're looking good. We're going to get better. We are. We are. That's not so with Christ. And it's, forgive me now already for that comparison, but I couldn't think of anything else on how to, how to relate this. But man, when, when it comes to Jesus Christ, I get to say we. I get to say like verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, the, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, I guess uh, you can even go down to verse 9 of Romans chapter 8. Where he says, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But notice verse 10. But if Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the dynamite. This is exactly what it is with Jesus Christ. I'm in Christ and whatever inheritance is Jesus's is mine. Whatever righteousness that Jesus, which is all righteousness, whatever righteousness Jesus has, it's all been credited to my account. And I did nothing to contribute to it. I did nothing to earn it. I did nothing on which God would look at me and say, yeah, he's done pretty good. Whatever righteousness is credited to my account, I contributed nothing except my own sin and my own rebellion. There's a fourth wonderful blessing. And then we're going to wrap it up with some practical application. The fourth one is found in verse 4, where we no longer have an obligation to live in sin. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, okay, so he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? Well, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Okay, so God looks at us as if we have fulfilled all righteousness. And then he describes us. He describes those who are in Christ as those who walk not. So the word walk is, is, a, is an image used for how we live our day-to-day lives. So I'm not going to live my life according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirements of God's moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments fully, completely, entirely fulfilled. Fully met. The righteous demands of God are met in Christ. All of my unrighteous deeds completely paid for. And so now we walk according to the Spirit. So since all claims of the law have been removed, it's, it's, it's death and it's power and the sin that comes with it, now we, we disown it. We disown the rule of the flesh. That's what Romans chapter 6 is about. You can go back and read that. 
We are now summarized as people who walk not under the operating principles of sin, but under the operating principles of the Holy Spirit. Two practical applications I want to leave you as we prepare to leave these four verses. Number one, we ought to devote our lives to seeing and savoring Jesus, our condemnation bearer. I think one of the greatest strategies of Satan for the joylessness of believers is to persuade them that they need to put most of their effort into earning no condemnation. One of Satan's greatest strategies for the joylessness of the believer is to try to persuade them that they need to spend most of their lives and put most of their effort into earning no condemnation for the Christian. And this leads to despair. Many despairing Christians, they they go through their lives ever looking inward and focusing on the shambles of their soul, but never gazing on Christ who bore their condemnation. What other option do we have then to despair? And that despair, what does it produce? It produces sullenness. It produces anger. It produces withdrawal from people. That's slavery. That's slavery. Now, the strategy of Satan to get us for joylessness is, for Satan is to either try to persuade us that we need to put most of our effort into earning no condemnation or by trying to convince us that we have obtained no condemnation by our own efforts. Kind of goes back to what we said at the beginning of the message. And this is what leads to arrogance. This leads us to looking at others purely on the basis of finding out what we don't like about them. It leads us to be scanning the room to see who isn't living by the standards that I think they should live by. So there's two sides of that. If you think it's up to you to earn no condemnation, you'll despair of yourself. If you think you have earned no condemnation in and of yourself, you're going to disdain others. Disdain others. So whether you despair of yourself or you disdain others, those are the results. That's the slavery we live in. And neither brings joy to our lives. But both lives can be conquered by seeing and savoring Jesus. Because that's how people change. People change when the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, causes them to see the beauty of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. In the Puritan Thomas Brooks's uh, book, and I think I've referenced this book before, called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He talks about uh, a section there where he talks about how Satan keeps Christians in a sad and miserable state, quote, by causing saints to remember their sins more than their Savior. And here's one of the remedies he suggests for that. He says, it is needful to keep one eye on the promise of remission of sin and the other eye on the inward operations of sin. So what he's saying there is kind of what Paul was saying. We said at the beginning, look inward, see your sin, but then get your eyes back to Christ. So it's good to keep one eye on the promise of remission of sin and the other eye on the inward operations of sin. Because if you lose sight of the inward operations of sin, that's where you get arrogant. 
Because then you no longer see in yourself for who you really are. But if you take your eyes off the promise of remission of sin, that's where you go into despair. Because all you can see is your sin. So we've got to keep an eye on both. Here's the second application from these four verses. Our lives can now be spent living in the freedom of the Spirit, not in the slavery of sin. Romans 5 and Galatians 6 make it clear that we are no longer slaves, but we are free to serve God. For freedom, that's Romans chapter 5, or Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Holy Spirit frees us to live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. By the power and presence of the Spirit, we can kill self-righteous hate and fits of anger. By the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we can kill self-exalting jealousy and divisiveness. By the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we can kill self-serving lusts and indulgences. The inference drawn from Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 is not, well, I'm free to sin. That's a life of misery. We ought to think much about what Christ has done for us. We should also think much about how our lives should, what should flow from our lives because of what Christ has done for us. You should talk to yourself. You should talk, as a matter of fact, you do talk to yourself. You talk to yourself all day long. You've talked to yourself during this message. And it might not be more than I'm hungry or I can't wait for the football game later. I can't wait for Geo tonight. You've talked to yourself already. So here's what you should do. Turn your talking into yourself into something beneficial. When you're tempted to sin, you can tell yourself and you can tell your sinful flesh, I am no longer obligated to serve you. There is no obligation on my life to serve my sinful flesh. And we can remind ourselves of that. And we can remind ourselves it's because there's no condemnation. And God has set me free, free from sin, to enjoy life in the Spirit. Verse 12 and 13 of Romans chapter 8 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But notice this, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christians, we're we're executioners. We are to be killing our flesh, the deeds of the flesh. We're not to be, this is not saying we need to hurt ourselves, cut ourselves, beat ourselves, physically harm ourselves. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when it comes to your spiritual life and those, those desires of your flesh and of sin, you kill them. You say, how do I kill them? You kill sin by starving it. We starve the flesh. That's what kills the deeds of the flesh. And we starve the flesh not by just not doing anything. We've got to feast on something. Otherwise, we'll just keep, eating the, keep feeding the sin. So we starve the flesh by feasting on the glories of Jesus Christ. And we feast on the glories of Jesus Christ by thinking about verses like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this will be the place to stop and ask if you are, even right now, if you are right now standing in a place of no condemnation, or are you right now standing in that place of condemnation? There is available to you in Christ Jesus a standing place of no condemnation. 
And the only way to have this standing before God is to be united with Jesus Christ. And the way you are united with Jesus Christ is by trusting him as your savior, that he died for your sins and rose again. This past week, the creator of the game of life, the board game, famous board game, is one of the favorites in our family. Creator of the game of life died at the age of 99. And if you're familiar with the game, it, includes pretty much everything you'd expect. You start out with a car and a person. You spin a wheel and it tells you how far to go. And all through life, you kind of start out choosing whether you're going to go to college or you're just going to start off with a career. And, you know, you, you weave in and out through different things in life. And, and all along, the goal is to, it's to get more money, to get a raise, to get a higher paying job, to get a bunch of these little cards for your retirement to land on spaces where you get more money or you get more stuff and you grow a family, you get better jobs and you get a house and then you get a bigger house. And by the end of it, when you get to a retirement mansion or whatever it's called, at the end of it, you've got this, this big pile of stuff. Houses, money, retirement bank. And you count it all up and see who won. And those are esteemed by the world as the most important things. But life is not a playground, it's not a board game. For the Christian, it's a battleground. And so whatever life may bring, whatever God may bring into your life, you ought to remember to bring into your life the seeing and savoring of the Lord Jesus. And you ought to bring into your life a remembrance that we, can spend, we are to spend our lives in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. That's the free life. That's the Christian life. Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, you know we only scratched the very surface of what even these four verses have to offer. We've only scratched even a smaller surface of what Romans 8 has to offer. Lord, we thank you that for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there's therefore now no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For you have done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending your own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, you condemn sin in the flesh. In order that the righteousness, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So Lord, may we ever live our lives not playing the game of life. But may we ever live our lives seeing and savoring the Lord Jesus. And may we spend our lives in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.